today provide you with in-depth news and expert analysis, tell you the whole story and the bigger picture, bring you the news you want to know only on today. Theresa May is set for further talks with EU leaders after MPs backed a proposal to renegotiate the Brexit deal. International Rescue Committee warns Yemen troops is on the verge of collapsing. Jana I is further opening up an updated version foreign investment law. Shinzo Abe vows to restore relations with North Korea and enhance ties with China. You're listening to today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, we'll have an hour of world news and analysis. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. Theresa May is expected to continue talks with EU leaders in the coming days after MPs backed a proposal for her to renegotiate her Brexit deal. MPs voted in favor of replacing the backstop, which is the insurance policy designed to avoid a hard border in Ireland in the event of no deal. But the EU has said it will not change the legal text agreed with the UK Prime Minister. Theresa May is also set for talks with Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn after MPs backed an amendment rejecting no deal. The Prime Minister said after taking the votes into account and talking to the EU, her revised deal would be brought back to the Commons as soon as possible for a second meaningful vote. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Phil Perry, editor of The Eye, an investigative investigative news website in Wales, UK. So, Mr. Perry, um, so now the British Parliament has passed basically two amendments. One is to renegotiate a new deal with the EU with changes to the backstop, and the other is to avoid no deal. So what does that mean? I mean, has has much changed with, with those votes? Well, what it means is that the uh, Prime Minister has backed, and uh, the government has backed, what they call the Brady Amendment, which means that they, she has to go back then to Brussels to renegotiate the Brexit deal with the EU uh, on this, as you were saying, in, uh, this backstop for the Irish border, uh, which is basically an insurance deal, say, well, you know, there will be a Good Friday agreement, no tolls. But the EU, as you've already reported, has already said no, we're not renegotiating it, take it or leave it. So she's in a bit of a bind, really, at this point. They think it's all going to change at the last minute. Yes, as you said, the EU leaders have said repeatedly that they are not open to renegotiations. So how are they going to respond to today's vote? Well, they they believe that the EU are going to back down at the last minute. the EU are very clearly saying, no, we are not renegotiating it. There are signs that possibly they will renegotiate bits, and the Brexiteers and the Tory government believe that they will back down at the last minute. It, basically, what's happening is that you are seeing a high-stakes gambling case, because Tory uh, Theresa May and the Conservative government believe that they will back down. The EU are saying that we won't back down and take it or leave it. So we don't. We just don't know who's going to win here. Either Theresa May will win or the EU will win. Well, the amendment calls for the planned Irish backstop to be replaced by what they call alternative arrangements. Any idea what those arrangements could be? My reading of that is that possibly they will look into the possibility of technology at the border, which Boris Johnson, who's a a leading Brexiteer and a contender for the leadership, has floated. Uh, They've already said, well, that won't work, but that possibly will be one of the alternative arrangements at the border. And conceivably, that could be an area where they will compromise on. So if the EU does not want to compromise, it does not want to reopen negotiations, and the British Parliament cannot find a compromise either, what is going to happen then? Well, 
if there is no compromise and if the EU don't back down and if the government stick to their guns, then basically Britain crashes out of the EU on March 29th without a deal and relies on World Trade Organization rules for trade. That's what's going to happen. So you mean a no-deal so Brexit I, yeah, is still on the table, even though the MPs have rejected that? Yeah, I mean, it's a, well, it's a very odd situation, this. I have never known a political time like it at the moment. I mean, you are having a... Basically, I've had said to me it's a constitutional crisis because... Parliament tried to take back control of the Brexit process last night, failed. The government is saying, well, we're going to go with this, and we're going to have a renegotiated deal where the EU is already saying, no, we won't. So nobody really knows what's going to happen. If there is no compromise, we will leave without without a deal on March 29th. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you mentioned earlier, this is like a high-stake gambling. But now a majority of British MPs have expressed their hopes not to leave the EU without a deal. And EU knows that very clearly. So will this strengthen the EU's hand in any purely hypothetical negotiations that might take place? Yeah, I mean, the EU will be aware that the vast majority of MPs in Westminster want to stay in the EU. So they will be aware of that, and that will be part of the negotiations, I think. That will be in the back of their mind. She lost her, through the May, lost her last Brexit deal by a huge majority. I mean, 230 votes. It's the biggest uh, government defeat in years, basically, ever, actually. <laughs> I mean, so the first one was lost, and she is now hoping that the second one, when she goes back, will get through. But nobody knows. So where do you think those votes last night, where where, where does this leave Theresa May politically in the UK and also in the EU? Well, that's a very interesting question. She's had very good headlines today, this morning. The perception is, in these headlines, that she has reunited the Conservative Party behind this Brady deal and renegotiation, uh, uh, what they are very concerned about with Conservatives is that they do not want a Labour government in, led by Jeremy Corbyn, who is left-wing, and they believe that if there is no... if there is a continuing problem, there is no deal, potentially there could be a general election and potentially... Labour could get in. So they are very worried about that. And Theresa May, obviously, is herself concerned about that. She also wants to reunite the Tory party, and she's a great pragmatist and wants to keep the Brexiteers on board. Yeah, and also in the meantime, uh, we it's reported that leading British retailers have written to the government warning of significant disruption of food supplies in the event of a no-deal Brexit. And it is also reported that British military bases abroad also have been stockpiling food, fuel, spare parts and ammunition in anticipation of a no-deal Brexit. So Will a no-deal Brexit really be so damaging? Or maybe do you feel some predictions could be politically charged? Uh, A no-deal Brexit will be hugely damaging. There is a perception that these things, uh, these preparations for a no-deal Brexit, are being made as part of the negotiations with the EU. It'll be damaging for the EU as well, but hugely more damaging for Britain if Britain leaves the EU without a deal. So there is a perception that these things are happening. They don't want it to happen, but it's part of the negotiation uh, proposal. In terms of big companies saying that no deal Brexit will be really harmful, that again will be part of the negotiation. The government are again aware of that, and it's almost certainly true. I mean, there will be huge delays at port if there is a no deal for these companies.
So uh, can we say that Britain now will leave the EU on March 29th with or without a deal? What about a, a second referendum? Is that option still on the table? Uh, everything is up in the air. Though. And that's a possibility, but then I think it's an unlikely one. It's been ruled out by the Conservative government. So it seems very unlikely there will be a second referendum and it seems very unlikely we will not leave the EU. And it seems likely that Britain will leave the EU on March 29th. But mm -hmm. all these options are on the table. You know, not leaving, leaving without, with a deal, a soft deal, leaving with no deal. So that's why I come back to this point of it being a high-stakes gambling game by Theresa May. Okay, thank you, Phil Perry, editor of The Eye, an investigative news website in Wales, UK. Thank you for joining us this evening. Coming up, International Rescue Committee warns Yemen truce is not is on the verge of collapsing. You're listening to today. Stay with us. Ever worry that you'll miss out on breaking events? Tune in to today to get the latest news and analysis on the important stories in China and around the globe. Today, illuminating the news that matters to you. As a guest speaker with today, I feel very much grateful for providing a chance for me to communicate to the world and China's progress and China's accomplishment and also China's rich cultural heritage and, of course, China's desire to integrate itself into the international community. I believe today opens the window as well as builds a bridge between people in China and the world. Hello, this is Michael Zhang. Greetings from Los Angeles of the Golden State of California. Thank you today for making me part of your team. I truly enjoyed the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come. You're listening to Today, I'm Zhao Ying. A humanitarian group has warned that a ceasefire agreed in Yemen's key port city of Hodeidah is on the verge of collapsing as a retired Dutch general in charge of the truce stepped down from his role. The U.S.-based International Rescue Committee said on Tuesday that recent clashes in the city between Houthi rebels who control it and pro-government forces backed by a Saudi-led coalition have increased dramatically since last week. The developments threatened to unravel a ceasefire and prisoner swap signed in December, the group said, urging the international community to step up pressure on the warring parties to stick to their commitments. The, war the warning comes today after the United Nations envoy for Yemen, Martin Griffiths, urged the warring sides to withdraw their troops from the city, which is a lifeline for millions of Yemenis facing starvation. Griffiths said the expected timeline for the truce and the prisoner swap has been pushed back. For more on this, we earlier talked to Saab Jawad, senior fellow with the Middle East Center of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Well, as we know, the two parties have been at war for four years. And when they agreed to sit down and talk about the mass prisoner swap and the ceasefire pact in Hodeida last month, there seemed to be doubts from the very beginning about the feasibility of those plans. Why is that? Yeah, because the two sides think that they could achieve something. And this is, of course, very dangerous feeling among the warriors themselves. The Saudis and the Emirates think that they could still achieve something in their war in Yemen, which, are, which is not achieving anything. And the Houthis think that they are steadfasting and they are uh, holding their positions and the aggression on them is not achieving any major victory. And in the end, the, the Houthis hope that, that the international community would step in and stop this war. So there was, this is the doubt between the two sides. Mm -hmm. But what made the two sides agree to sit down and talk in the first place? Like how many 
common grounds were there between the two sides? No, the the the, the side who accepted to sit down and talk is the aggressive or the attacking side, which is the Saudis and the Emirates, because the Houthis were always trying to start negotiations with the government, the Yemeni government, and to reach a settlement through negotiations, of course, with with with, with enforcing their point of view. But the Saudis who were who started the war, initiated the war, and they did not accept any negotiations. They only accepted the defeat of the Houthis. Now, they have not achieved that. And on top of that, the Saudis' financial and political situation is in a very critical posi- position, especially after the fall down of the oil prices and the crime of Jamal Khashoggi in the uh, Saudi consulate in, 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 in Turkey. That's why they have accepted to 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 go to negotiation to, to negotiation. Yeah, and, and we know that major Western powers, including the U.S. and the U.K., they were also behind the peace talks. What made them feel that it was a good time back then to talk about a ceasefire? Yeah, the international community is a different question because the international community, especially the United States, supported this war at the beginning, thinking, as the Saudis thought, uh, it would be ended within three or four months. But then when it lasted that long and the high uh, volume of civilian casualties is, is, is falling in Yemen and the in, in, uh, humanitarian disaster that is, is striking Yemen itself, I think the international community was put in an awkward position and everybody felt guilty that they are leaving Yemen to this to this uh, to this obscure future. That's why they have supported this this peace initiative. So if the ceasefire pact collapsed, what would that mean to the situation in the region? It will be another disaster and prolonged war and more casualties and more instability in the region. And I think uh, nobody wants that apart from the parts who are benefiting from this war, I mean Iran and Saudi Arabia. But everybody will feel that this is this is not an, any any uh, achievable uh, war. Well, we know that it has also been confirmed that Patrick Cameron, uh, who is the one to head the monitoring team tasked with overseeing the Hudaydah truce, he will also be replaced with a Danish official. Any idea why he is stepping down? Well, this is because the Houthis, I mean, uh, uh, opposed his continuing of of his of his mission. They said that they, they do not want him to continue because he has been trying, according to their uh, uh, declarations, he has been uh, doing his own agenda and not. Uh, put, uh, I'm not solving the problem at Hodeidanima. The other, uh, the other problem is that the Houthis, right from the beginning, opposed any foreign intervention, and when they accepted uh, this mission of observing the, the the ceasefire in Yemen, they have said that these people should be working in civilian clothes, not military or international or United Nations uniform, in order not to let the people feel that they have accepted foreign intervention. And it seems that the Danish general was not following these rules, so they have asked for him to be replaced, and they have replaced him by this Danish Danish general who has worked in Mali and other places before as an inspector. Mm-hmm. So, Professor Jawad, what do you think is the root cause behind Yemen's long-term instability? Do you think it is more about the domestic issues or about what you have mentioned about the regional geopolitics, particularly between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Well, it's, it's actually it's a mixture of both. To start with, Yemen did not, or the politicians in Yemen or the government in Yemen did not try to reach a peaceful settlement to the issues, to the differences inside Yemen. And both sides 
kept on uh, running to arms and to uh, to arms uh, activities in order to solve this problem. In, in other words, they wanted the weapons to solve the problem, not the negotiation. Both sides, of course, not only one side. And of course, with the, the stability in Yemen and the removal of Ali Abdullah Saleh, these Houthis group have gained very much force because before there was a state and they had an army who could uh, who could stop them at bay, but this one or keep them at bay, but this time the army was divided and the new government was weak so the Houthis thought that they could push forward and uh, impose their point of view. On the other hand the Saudis and the Americans thought, and especially the Saudis, thought that if the Houthis come to power or enforce their own point of view, that will be a very dangerous situation for them for their national security, especially because they think that the Houthi has been supported by the Iranians, and that would mean that the struggle with the Iranians will be increased in the region, and now it's going to be near to their borders in Yemen. So they decided unwisely to go to war. So are we not going to see the long-lasting peace as long as the Saudi-Iran rivalry continues to dominate the regional issues? Well, it's not only the Saudi-Iranian rivalry. Uh, rivalry. I think the Yemenis could solve their problems themselves. If they reach an agreement, then nobody else from the outside world could force them to go to war again. But the problem is everybody is weak and is supported by a strong ally, and the, 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 the government of President Hadi is not strong enough to say that we have to stop this war and sit to negotiate. He's still implementing the agenda of the Saudis and the, and the Emirates. And uh, the Houthis also are pushed by the Iranians and other allies to go forward with their with their uh, war against the Saudi and the Emirates in order to weaken them in the region, and this is the reason I think if the Saudi if the Yemenis themselves sit down around table negotiation and talk to the, to each other, I could I think they could solve the problem. So, what so what do you make of the major power elements on in this region, like the U.S. and like Russia? Well, the major powers are really not that keen or interested in this problem. Yes, they are feeling the humanitarian disaster. They are feeling what is happening in Yemen. But really, they are not pushing forward because they could, through the United Nations, through the Security Council, enforce a ceasefire and send uh, international forces, I mean, United Nations peace forces to the area and solve the problem. But the problem is that up to now, they are not doing that. They are only criticizing this part and this part, and at the same time, they are supplying all the parts with weapons and ammunition that could uh, allow them to, to continue the war. That's Saad Jawad, senior fellow with the Middle East Center of the London School of Economics and Political Science. A quick reminder of our top headline news this hour. British Prime Minister Theresa May won Parliament's backing on Tuesday to renegotiate her Brexit deal, a majority, a major policy reversal that sets up a new standoff with the EU after it ruled out any change. The pound plunged on fears of a no-deal scenario as MPs voted through an amendment saying they would only support a divorce deal if the controversial backstop clause to keep the Irish border open was removed. MPs also voted in favor of a non-binding measure that rejects the United Kingdom leaving the European Union without a withdrawal agreement. The International Rescue Committee is extremely concerned by intensifying clashes between warring parties inside Hudaydah city, while fighting inside the critical port city has dramatically decreased since warring parties agreed to a ceasefire attacks in Sweden last December. Recent clashes demonstrate the extremely fragile state of the agreement. The IRC calls on the international community, especially the U.S. and the U.K., to capitalize on the momentum made at the end of 2018 and pressure all warring parties to end the fighting and abide by the agreement made during peace talks in Stockholm. 
It said the Stockholm Agreement was the first diplomatic breakthrough and first source of hope for the Yemeni people. Coming up, China eyes further opening up in updated draft foreign investment law, and Shinzo Abe vows to restore relations with North Korea and enhance ties with China. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. You're listening to today. I'm Zhao Ying. We'll be back in a minute. You are, whatever you are interested in, you can always find today covering the news you care about. Global headlines, business analysis, the latest developments in education, or the scores from the pitch. Get a deeper understanding of the news that matters most with the Today Show. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now is global survey where we look at what's happening around the world. Joining me in the studio is Ding Hong.、Uh, good evening, Zhao Ying. So let's start with Asia. Mongolia's parliamentary speaker Akinbold Mayangambo has been ousted following weeks of public protests over accusations that he was involved in the corrupt sales of government positions. A South Korean, a South Korean appeals court has nearly doubled jail time for a former speed skating coach convicted of physically abusing a two-time Olympic champion. In Oceania, Australian police have raided the stables of one of the country's leading horse trainers amid a probe into alleged racing fraud. In New Zealand, two men have stolen three blue penguins, a protected species in the country, from their burrow on the east coast of the North Island. Moving on to Africa, Sudanese authorities have ordered the release of all detainees held during weeks of anti-government protests. Cameroonian authorities have arrested opposition leader Maurice Kamto following weeks of following protests over the past weekend, as Kamto has been mobilizing dissent against President Paul Biya after he lost last year's presidential election. Turning to the Middle East. Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas has accepted the resignation of Prime Minister Rami Hamdallah in a move seen as a bid by the president to isolate his political rival Hamas. Iran's capital city of Tehran has imposed a ban on walking pet dogs as part of a long-standing official campaign to discourage dog ownership. In Europe, Spain has reduced the speed limit on major rural roads to 90 kilometers per hour, down from 100 kilometers per hour, in a bid to increase road safety. Norwegian airline company is looking to raise 3 billion Norwegian kroner, or more than 350 million U.S. dollars, through a rights issue in a bid to, to improve its finances. Looking to Latin America, Venezuela's top court has banned opposition leader Juan Guaido from leaving the country and frozen his bank accounts amid an ongoing power struggle. Brazilian police have arrested five people as part of an investigation into a deadly dam collapse last Friday, including three managers from the dam's operating company. And finally, in North America, in the United States, data from the National Shooting Sports Foundation show that gun sales across the country slumped by one point by 6.1 percent in 2018, marking the second straight year of declines. Stay in the country, the Los Angeles School Board has voted to ask state lawmakers to suspend approving any new charter schools in the area, following a strike by a union for more than 30,000 teachers. Who argue that charter schools are taking away resources from traditional classroom classrooms? Thank you, Ding Hong. That's the global headlines survey for today. Chinese lawmakers have reviewed a new draft of the foreign investment law as part of the move to promote further opening up. The new version has been updated from the first draft submitted to the previous session last month. 
The unified law, once adopted, will replace three existing laws on Chinese foreign equity joint ventures, non-equity joint ventures, and wholly foreign-owned enterprises. Li Fei is the chair of China's top legislature's constitution and law committee. He says foreign-invested companies will have equal access to favorable policies for enterprises. The pre-establishment national treatment means that foreign investors will enjoy treatment no lower than their Chinese counterparts during their company's establishment, profit-making, and expansion. The negative list refers to the country's special administrative measures for foreign investment access in some specific sectors. Foreign investment outside the negative list will be given national treatment. China's draft foreign investment law will be submitted for review at the upcoming National People's Congress plenary session that is scheduled to start from March the 5th. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yan earlier spoke with David Yu, adjunct professor of finance at New York University, Shanghai, and Wang Dan, analyst of the Economist Intelligence Unit. China currently has three laws to respectively uh, regulate Chinese uh, foreign equity joint ventures, non-equity joint ventures, and wholly foreign-owned businesses. But why does China need a new and unified law on the foreign investment? I think there are mainly two reasons why this is necessary. Um, The main reason is probably to simplify the regulation process, which is good not just for foreign investors, but also would make it an easier job for Chinese regulators. Uh, currently, there are three laws. There's just too many clauses to follow. And the second reason I think uh, this is a pretty clear signal for uh, foreign investors that in the future, they would be treated equally as domestic companies, which means the previous favorable policies they were used to would no longer uh, be there, at least on a national level. On a regional level, there will still be some. But mostly, they will be facing similar complaints and headaches that domestic companies also face. And so, David, uh, the new draft law says uh, no administrative uh, powers should be used to force technology transfer. So how to make, uh, make sure that uh, when foreign investors encounter abuse of administrative powers, there are effective legal means available for them to defend their rights? I think the main thing here is to see what type of uh, mechanisms uh, are, uh, are available and clearly laid out, uh, whether these mechanisms be uh, legal of normal court-type proceedings or other, th- uh, other ways, uh, such as uh, arbitration. Well, both of these have uh, different positives. There are also uh, uh, negatives on, on both of these issues, such as cost and, and timeliness of resolution, which seems to be uh, a big point in that uh, timeliness has a uh, have uh, destroyed some of these uh, potential deals and, and investments that have uh, taken place. I think that the main thing here is, is about uh, lower cost and uh, the, the timeliness to complete is, is a couple of main things. And then, so some stipulations we've seen in this uh, draft, including stop force technology transfer and enhance the uh, intellectual property protection. So how significant is that? And who will be benefiting from this when it's adopted? This is quite significant in terms of uh, uh, as a response to the U.S. requirement, um, because this is also at the center of the U.S.-China trade war. And once adopted, I think it will benefit those companies that actually own the technology and some of the even for some local companies, they might benefit as well. And in turn, this would encourage more research and development. But I do think this will take quite some years of trials and error because there will be problems and then this law or details of specification uh, will be revised. But uh, Dan, so what's the general picture of uh, China's uh, you know, foreign direct investment uh, uh, recently or last year? What are the foreign investors' key concerns or what factors will, will they take into consideration when they make decisions on the uh, investment? So actually, FDI has been having quite a good year in 2018, and it carried over until now. I think there are several contributors to that. Uh, One is still China's market potential is quite clear. There are some economic fluctuations, but CEOs or other people making decisions understand uh, in midterm or even in 10-year period, China is still likely, very likely to become the, uh, the biggest market in the world. So they can tolerate some economic fluctuations as long as 
um, political stability and business environment stay stable, which I think both are China's strengths. And another important reason is that uh, because China wants to show some goodwill to uh, as a response to the U.S., so there are quite a few large projects being uh, prioritized or on a fast track to be approved, uh, in, especially in energy industry and also in, uh, in, in terms of uh, technology and financial services. So I think those are positive signs. And so, uh, David, as for the uh, FDI, if I'm not mistaken, I remember that uh, internationally, FDI was on a decline last year. But on the contrary, China has seen an increase. So far, the FDI environment in China is rather healthy. So we'd get uh, you know, another boost when this law adopted. I think this law obviously would help overall the, the overall sentiment from uh, foreign investors uh, into the clarity of their decision-making and how it will be treated once the capital gets onshore. Uh, I think uh, there's been many different issues that we've talked about uh, mm-hmm. on, on the show and others. But uh, the main point here is, uh, is this helpful to the overall picture uh, as, as decision-makers make it? These decisions are, like, like Dan was saying, was uh, not just short-term, but medium and long-term issues as well with a lag effect. And you can see that from the numbers, where uh, it still has not uh, dropped down compared to uh, other countries uh, in 2018 versus previous years. And then, so what do you think is the outlook for the FDI in China this year? I'm positive about it. Um, there has been uh, some major projects starting, um, say the Tesla company. I just started uh, a gigafactory in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And also uh, there are several uh, large infrastructure projects that has foreign investors involved that's in the pipeline. Um, also, I think China's asset price are relatively at a relatively low level right now. So for many foreign investors, this is not a bad time to get into China. Mm. And David, so what do you think is the outlook for FDI? Uh, I think uh, FDI should... Based on the lag effects, uh, a strong showing. But I think in, in the middle of next year, there'll be uh, this lag effect will start to show, and, and there will be some uh, some more concern, cause for concerns uh, from overall sentiment. But uh, I think uh, in, in general, in my opinion, uh, has uh, not gotten to where it needs to be. It's still quite high on a comparative basis uh, on a global scale. That's David Yu, adjunct professor of finance at New York University, Shanghai, and Wang Dan, analyst of Economist Intelligence Unit, speaking with Zhao Yan. Coming up, Shinzo Abe vows to restore relations with North Korea and enhance ties with China. You're listening to Today. Stay with us. I am Alka Acharya. I teach at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in India. Today has... Uh, organized its programs and uh, its stress on uh, bringing in a lot of views uh, from all over. It is an extremely good platform for uh, information and analysis and I wish it all success in the future. You're listening to Today, I'm Zhao Ying. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has pledged to resolve post-war historical issues including a territorial dispute with Russia and a wide-ranging policy speech. On the diplomatic front, Abe says he hopes Japan and China can maintain the current momentum and continue to improve their ties. He also says it is important to create a viable social welfare system and deal with the impact of a planned tax hike. For more on this, my colleague Su Yi earlier spoke with Yang Shihui, research fellow with China Institute of International Studies. First, on diplomatic issues, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says he is determined to solve the decades-long territorial issues uh, with Russia once and for all. Although both state leaders have shown political will to do this, uh, we understand there are still challenges. So what are the sticking points uh, when it comes to this issue? Well, I think uh, both uh, Japan and Russia have true intention to solve the uh, territorial disputes uh, for the uh, peace treaty. However, uh, up to now, I don't think there's a tangible uh, test towards the uh, mutually accepted goal, simply because uh, 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 Moscow's position and uh, Tokyo's ones remain far apart. 
so up to now, they only uh, both the, both sides only showed uh, sincere intention and determin determinations, but no concrete uh, solutions. Um, we can expect uh, uh, there will be a, a warmly summit again in the near future. Uh, but I cannot see the probability of the substantive progress towards the solution, real solution of the territorial uh, disputes for the peace treaty. Uh, I think uh, Abe will keep taking the uh, issue as his top priority uh, of diplomacy. Uh, it's really difficult. Uh, to solve this issue in his uh, intention. So about China and Japan, against the backdrop of both China and Japan being targeted by the U.S.-Trump administration over trade, uh, what's your expectation of the development of this pair of ties between China and Japan this year? When many Chinese uh, talking about uh, China-U.S. trade conflicts or trade war, I would uh, prefer saying that's not a bilateral trade war. It's a comprehensive trade war between U.S. and its major trading partners, including China and Japan. Uh, however, uh, in terms of uh, uh, content of the trade conflicts between U.S. and uh, China and the U.S. and Japan, there are uh, quite a different uh, uh, matters. Uh, for China, uh, U.S. wanted to uh, wanted to force China to make some changes in rules. And interestingly, China has determined to deepen the reform that will certainly change some existing rules and the regulations in Chinese market. So uh, it's uh, possible, it's highly possible that uh, uh, the two sides uh, will reach agreement in the negotiation uh, which is underway now. But for your, uh, U.S. and Japan, I think U.S. focuses on more structural problems in Japanese uh, market, say, openness of Japanese market. Uh, the progress is uh, on U.S.-Japan uh, trade negotiation uh, will get a longer path than other uh, American trading partners uh, because of the issues between U.S. and Japan has been existing for a long time, since uh, late last century to now. Uh, but in nature, I think unilateralism by U.S. won't solve any uh, trade disputes with uh, its trading partners like China and Japan. Only when U.S. Uh, return to an equal footing uh, with uh, the trading partners with China, with Japan, and others, then uh, we can uh, solve this issue. Japan can solve the issue. Although uh, there are different contents between uh, U.S., Japan, U.S., China. So still talking about its neighbors, the spat over wartime forced labor between Japan and South Korea has been under the spotlight again uh, during the past few weeks. So things like this, what's needed for the Japanese government to really settle down those historical issues with its neighbors? Actually, you have touched on the very key words, historical issue. Uh, between Japan, the South Korea, or Japan, other uh, uh, others, uh, some other Asian nations. Uh, there have been uh, quite a, quite uh, several uh, sensitive and important uh, issues left by the war, uh, like uh, forced labor and uh, comfort women and and so on. Uh, different issues need to uh, uh, need to be addressed in different uh, uh, ways. However. The common base is the right acknowledgement about history, about the war. Uh, for example, uh, now there are quite a difficult uh, ob obstacles for progress and uh, solution to the forced labor uh, negotiation between Japan and South Korea. Uh, but after all, uh, above all, uh, the most difficult and uh, important issue is Japanese acknowledgement about history. Only when Japan returns to the right position about history, then uh, the two countries, South Korea and Japan, can solve the false labor 
uh, issue uh, as well as the other issue like carbon payment. As long as Japan insists on the existing wrong position, I don't think uh, uh, any negotiations between South Korea and Japan uh, will be able to solve the false labor uh, and the related issue like a compensation. Prime Minister Abe says he still intends to push ahead with his plans to amend Japan's pacifist constitution uh, before the year of 2020. So where are they when it comes to the amendment plan? And it's likely to pass eventually, uh, given uh, Prime Minister Abe's pretty solid political support in Japan. Well, it's well known that uh, Prime Minister Abe has got a very ambitious uh, intention to uh, amend uh, the pacifist uh, constitution. Uh, but uh, many people uh, doubt that uh, he will be able to do that simply because uh, quite a long list of uh, political agenda facing Abe uh, from domestic uh, to abroad. Uh, we, within the limited time, say 2020, I really doubt Abe will be able to complete, uh, uh, accomplish his goal of uh, amending the Pacifist uh, Constitution. However, uh, he will certainly, no matter he will, he will be able or will not be able, he will certainly uh, push forward uh, to the goal uh, he has insisted on. Uh, so even if he cannot complete his goal, I think he will uh, he will try to leave as much progress as possible to his successor, so that uh, uh, Japan can uh, bring about uh, uh, amending the the existing pacifist uh, constitution. That is uh, his belief. That uh, that is his uh, determination. That is uh, uh, his goal. Uh, that really reflects uh, right-wing politicians and political forces in Japan's uh, uh, intention. That's Yang Shiyu, research fellow with China Institute of International Studies, speaking with my colleague Sui. You're listening to Today. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, this is Einar Tangen. The Today Show brings expert local and international perspectives on China's economic and business issues. Having been in law, government, and finance in the United States, I find China's economic and political evolution fascinating, and hope you do also. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Now joining us for other news is my colleague Jing Heng again. Hello again. So a unique basketball team has recently played against, uh, played against the professionals as part of this year's all-star game of the Women's Chinese Basketball Association or, w- or WCBA. All members of the amateur team are recipients of organs from a same person. Ye Sha, a 16-year-old boy, died in, in the year 2017 after suffering from suffusions of blood in his brain. His parents then decided to donate part of his organs to seven people. Ye had been a die-hard basketball lover. Therefore, five recipients of his organs decided to form a basketball team last year as a way to pay tribute to, to the boy. Well, this is uh, really a moving story. So tell us more about the members in the team. So this is a team of four guys and a girl. Their real names were actually never made public. So the team leader is a 54-year-old guy, the recipient of uh, Yesha's liver. Um, his basketball ski- uh, skill uh, is, is actually the best among the team. That's why he is the leader. And he is actually the only one who scored some points in the in the most recent game. Uh, the girl is a 14-year-old teenager from the central Chinese city of Hunan. Uh, she has received uh, the, the cornea, which is the transparent uh, front part of the eye. And because of uh, the um, organ trans- transplant operation that she has received, she has now uh, normal vision. So... The other three members in the team are recipients of the lungs, kidneys, and cornea. 
So they scored uh, four points or two points in the game. Uh, a couple of. Yeah, of course, for them to to play against the professional basketball players, it is not about winning or losing. Yeah.、Uh, we know China has the world's second largest number of organ donors, but what are some of the main challenges facing organ donation in China? Ah,、uh, the fundamental challenge is this、um, huge. Gap or huge imbalance between supply and demand. So, according to China's official figure, each year in China,、uh, some th-、uh, some three thousand, three hundred thousand rather,、uh, patients in China are waiting for new new organs. While at the same time, on the supply side, there are only some. Uh, a little more than ten thousand、uh, organ donors, so the gap here is very, very huge. And I think,、uh, fundamentally speaking,、uh, one issue is in a lot of、um, you know culturally cons- or economically conservative areas. Mentally speaking, people still don't accept organ donors, despite the public campaign by the government. And even for for people who are willing to do so, there are social pressures. For example, other people might say in a pretty I would say speculative and malicious way that organ donors are using their organs to make money, even though people with a bit of normal sense would、uh, disagree. That's not the case. So I think with all this in mind, it is a good thing that we have we have um such a unique basketball team、uh, showing off at a such a high profile sporting events to better educate the public that oh by making some donation by donating your organs. Ah,、uh, you can make some difference. And it, it, they they did have encouraged more、uh, volunteers to donate their organs, right?、Mm, indeed.、Mm-hmm. Let's move on to our next story. So, for more than a decade, many migrant workers in South China's Pro River Delta have rode motorcycles on their way back home, usually hundreds of kilometers away for the annual spring festival. They have done so mostly because of the challenges in getting train tickets. In recent years, however, there have been signs that the so-called motorcycle army is shrinking in size. Let's take the city of Wuzhou, which is a key checkpoint along the way for many motorcyclists, as one example. Local authorities expect some 50,000 motorcyclists to travel past the city through the current travel rush. A year ago, the same figure was standing at 55,000. This number, according to local officials, has been declining after hitting a peak of about 250,000 back in the back in the year 2013. So, what could be the reasons behind the shrinking of motorcycle army? I think、uh, fundamentally speaking, it's because of the transformation that is going on with the Chinese economy. You know, the so-called、uh, higher value chain, climb up, climbing up the value chain, and also a lot of、um, you know labor-intensive industries are moving from coastal areas to the inner places, to inner to inner cities, inner inner regions. So this means、uh, we don't the Chinese economy no longer needs so many. A cheap labor no longer needs so many people to migrate to leave their home. That's the fundamental issue, and of course, at the same time, better infrastructure,、uh, the development of、uh, railway services, especially with development of high-speed trains, and、uh, you know, because of the surging labor cost here in China, a lot of migrant workers they are now,、um, economically speaking, they are pretty comfortable in their life. So they have their own cars. So basically, everybody has more choices when. When it comes to what kind of、uh, way they would choose、uh, to go back home. Thank you, Ding Hong. That's all the time we have for this edition of today. To hear this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World News Analysis. The program engineer of this episode is Ya Qing. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>